0: Cinematologist podcast. I'm Daryl Linares. I hope you're suitably warm in uh, whatever genius ways people are finding to do that at the moment and obviously not paying thousands of pounds for the privilege but I don't think there's any avoiding that. I don't mean to be flippant here. Uh, the politics of staying warm is an existential question for many of us in the current political malaise but the last week has been perfect weather for a, a remake of Ice Station Zebra or a, or a spin-off Star Wars, for that matter, probably called something like Hoff Diaries. I'm bringing this up not because of that British affectation to start all conversations on the subject of the weather, but because it's just another of the multitudinous challenges to cinema going. I'm sat here recording this intro in uh, Pitch Houses Central. I'm about to go in and see After Sun, directed by Charlotte Wells. And this is with my Black Friday purchased Picture Houses membership. And I was thinking about how to introduce today's interview and again, the theme, the recurring theme of cinema going, that's in the the context of the COVID pandemic and, and well before that, it's definitely been a recurring theme on the podcast. I'm not being paid to evangelize about Picture Houses by any means, and it's certainly a privilege to be able to drop 100 quid just like that on a yearly membership. But with 10 free tickets and other various discounts, it did strike me as a genuine bargain for someone who goes to the cinema as much as I do. And for me, it's not just about the films themselves. When it's a really great venue with a spacious bar or a restaurant and just a nice environment to prepare yourself for the cinema going experience, the whole holistic process is actually quite a central part of my life when I think about it. Don't get me wrong, the auditorium experience is too. Indeed, the older I get, the more I think that in the context of so much digital distraction, I'm increasingly sympathetic to the, what might seem, the rather archaic sensibility that cinema is a specific environment which manifests a unique experience of cognitive and embodied immersion one that can't be fully replicated elsewhere in any other viewing environment. There are obviously a long line of thinkers who have written about the cinematic apparatus or, or use the more nuanced term, the cinematic dispositif, going back through film philosophers such as Jean-Louis Baudry, Christian Metz, Vivian Sobchak, David Roderwick, Deleuze and Guattari, and Raymond Bellew, I'm not forgetting, of course, Francesco Cassetti's book, The Lumiere Galaxy, which I think is very good on reckoning with with these debates about what we mean when we say the cinematic experience in the digital age. But the subject does go beyond the mere question of whether it's experientially better to watch films in the cinema. I remember back in the early days of the podcast, one of the main reasons for doing the show down in Falmouth was to try and get the students to come to screenings. There were lots of reasons, of course, why they didn't come, And my attempts to get students to come to screenings in my new university this semester has had many of the same issues, whether it's to do with the value of the screening to the subject being taught, which sounds counterintuitive, but that's an excuse I've heard. Watching at home is better than watching in the auditorium, which again, you know, we've discussed with the students this term. Out and out laziness, which can't be discounted, and which is kind of more problematic for film students. The fact that many don't possess what I would call a deep cinephile curiosity. It's a sad fact, I'm afraid. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the wider subject of the differentiation between what we might call mainstream cinema-going audiences now and the way that they demarcate between films that are deemed worthy of a visit to the cinema and those that are not. I'm speaking pretty much from a speculative standpoint here. One granted that's reacting to articles that have been written quite regularly about about the problems of getting people generally to come back to the auditorium. Another such article popped up on my social media feed this week, written in the New York Times by Brooks Barnes. It talked about how critically acclaimed middle-brow to high-brow films that were aimed at awards recognition failed to garner enough box office to justify them being made in the first place. The question of whether prestige films are economically viable for theatres and the fact that streaming is blamed for this, essentially. It kind of embeds the idea that the notion of the cinematic, in scare quotes, now only re- really means big-budget franchise spectacle movies. Just a quote from the article, he writes, One after another, films for grown-ups have failed to find an audience big enough to justify their cost. Armageddon Time cost roughly $30 million to make, and the market collected $1.9 million at the North American box office. TAR, cost at least 35 million, including marketing. Ticketing sales totaled 5.3 million. Universal spent around 55 million to make and market She Said, which also took in 5.3 million. Devotion cost well over 100 million and has generated 14 million in ticket sales. And even The Fablemans, based on Mr. Spielberg's adolescence, has collected 5.7 million in four weeks of limited play. Its budget was 40 million, not including marketing. So the writer thinks that Hollywood is failing to come to terms with its own irrelevancy when it comes to these prestige movies. In contacting studio executives, the article says that they just got back anodyne answers about executives being proud of their prestige work. Interestingly though, lower budget arthouse films still find a cinephile audience, on a much smaller scale of course, but they have smaller budgets to begin with. The people who listen to this kind of podcast, for example, would probably agree that the the cinephile culture is much more akin these days to the ecosystem of theatre. There's also the argument that mainstream cinema audiences find dramatically introspective films too depressing. And, again, related back to the kind of bombardment of digital content that we all have to navigate, you could argue that escape, in quotes again, is the underlying state that consumers are searching for. So paying money to take two or three hours out of your day just to be further depressed is not something that many people want to do. And then there's, of course, the notion of cost. I remember seeing online discussion around National Cinema Day back in September. Many cinemas doing three-pound tickets and lots of people commenting on just how full the cinemas were. But in this climate, it's no wonder that exhibitors in the mainstream end are always looking for the next big saviour Top Gun Maverick was obviously the big one this summer and the discourse around it having to be seen in the cinemas because it was so spectacular was more around its action possessing a material weight, unlike the flimsiness of many CGI heavy productions, and of course, a heavy dose of nostalgia. So that brings us to today's interview. I talked to Chris Cassingham, who is studying for an MA in Film Curation at NFTS. I have met him a couple of times at our regular screenings at the Garden Cinema. And we talked about his graduation film series, which is entitled Beyond Interpretation. And it focuses on what he calls marginal American cinema, as opposed to independent cinema, which is obviously a subject that we get into in the interview. But we also contextualize the conversation with regards to some of these issues that I've talked about in this introduction. And we discuss the disruptive politics of counter or even anti-mainstream programming, And also, with the resonances of the films that he has chosen, the current zeitgeist of paranoia, anxiety, and conspiracy theory. So that interview is coming right up. But before that, I just needed to plug our final live screening and recording. Uh, This takes place in the Garden Cinema again, in Covent Garden. If you haven't been down there, it's really worth checking out, even if it's on another film as opposed to our screening night. But we are showing Blood Simple on Tuesday the 20th of December at 7pm. Cohen Brothers' directorial debut, of course. And I'm going to be joined by producer-director James Dean, who you might remember from the first episode of this season when we were up in Manchester with Caroline Katz. He picked the film as it's one of his favorites. So if you're a true cinematologist and a cinephile and an ardent believer in the cinema-going experience who happens to be around London on the 20th, I'd love to see you down there. But for now, let's move into the main part of the episode. This is me talking to Chris Cassingham about curation Yeah, we caught up when you came to the uh, the last screening of vep that's right, isn't it? And um so it was nice to meet you there and I know you've been following the show a little bit.
1: Well, yeah, it's. It, I, I've sort of come to the the show pretty recently. I I went to your uh, Cape Fear taping at the Garden a f- couple months ago, and that was my first exposure to the podcast. And so I was like, whoa, if they're if they're getting together these screenings of these type types of films, I'm in. So uh, yeah, just had my eye out on the on the uh, the various screenings you're putting on with the Garden. Um, and have really enjoyed them. Right. But I I guess, maybe we'll talk about this, but I I came to your podcast slightly more officially through some research I was doing for this grad project. Right. You had done an interview with one of the directors, of a film in my grad project and i and i was like oh these are this is these are the guys from uh those <laughs> screenings at the garden um it's like oh we have, we, we have even more similar interests
0: yeah so it, it's kind of a small cinematic world in in many respects uh, when things like that
1: it very much very much happens.
0: so yeah 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 so you just uh, you just flown back to the states am i right whereabouts Whereabouts are you exactly
1: i'm just outside of milwaukee wisconsin which is if that's unfamiliar, I'm about an hour and a half north of Chicago. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah
0: I mean, <laughs> geography is not my <laughs> strong suit anyway, but sort of states of the United States, uh, I could probably be better on, that's for sure.
1: Bor- up Way up north in the US, bordering Canada.
0: You know, we had a chat because you have curated this uh, season that's coming up at the ICA as part of your MA degree i mean i'm assuming she's kind of your you know your big final project as it were but um maybe you could say a little bit about that because obviously you know neil and i both work in universities and nfts is uh you know a big organization in the landscape of uh film education so i mean maybe you could tell, tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in this sort of field of uh of cinephilia of film organization and administration i suppose it's part of but you know we've talked a lot on the show about curating so yeah tell us a little bit about nfts and the curating course
1: yeah so i i came to the nfts really through not not chance per se because i was on the lookout for something like this ma course that was bit that the nfts offers but I'd been two years removed from university. I was out working in the real world, really not enjoying what I was doing. And it was sort of a, the mixture of the, the pandemic hitting me having relatively recently quit my job. I was working in state government, just a a government hack (laughs) essentially. And, uh, is that in the U S in the U S yeah, it was, I was working in Virginia, which is where I went to school, but, um, yeah, so I it was a confluence of those two things and and my really growing I guess, yeah, cinephilia which I was using as sort of my coping mechanism against this awful job that I hated. Uh, yeah, and I so it it really was just a matter of almost like googling uh what 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 is what what are the uh you know, educational opportunities that might align with this these kind of burgeoning interests and the uh the ma course at the nfts came up i had never seen anything like it obviously there are lots of master's courses in film studies but the kicker was programming and curation which is alongside the film studies course here at 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 the nfts so it was uh yeah it was just something i had never seen before and i really applied (laughs) almost really a week later this was june 2020 and I pretty I applied as quickly as I could essentially, and had an interview in August, and I was accepted by September. Uh, so it was an extremely quick turnaround.
0: Right? Did you always want to kind of study abroad, or you know, was it was it um, were you looking in the U.S. as well?
1: I was looking in the U.S., but uh, uh, there really is nothing like this course in the world, really. That I I believe Birkbeck does something similar, but it's certainly not in the U.S. There's nothing like this. Sure. Um, so yeah, the, the, the notion of studying abroad came afterwards, although I guess maybe subconsciously I had an interest, but, um, it, it wasn't at the forefront, but yes, yeah, so, but since coming, since coming to the NFTS, it's been just a dream, really. It's endlessly fascinating course really puts the practicalities at the forefront, which for, for someone who has, who's very minimal exposure to film studies before this course, uh, was very theoretical Uh, so so yeah so the practical element of the course has been just a a steep learning curve but an exciting challenge
0: it's interesting to me in terms of what the core content would be and you you know you're sort of talking about the practical applications I mean and we've talked about the word curation on the podcast and you know if if you kind of reduce it down you could almost just Sort of say what it implies is just picking for something that you like to watch, but clearly there's more to it yeah. than that. So you know what? What are the key factors in in curation for you? Into and and you know what do they teach you about it in uh, NFTs?
1: Well, yeah, you're you're at the very basic level. You are sort of right. You are the curation really is <laughs> at, at at the maybe deep down it is essentially picking things you like to put on and hoping that other people uh, will be interested in as well. And I guess that's that's the key part is the hoping that other people will be interested as well. And that that's what the NFTS has really um, focused on is a, the uh, audience awareness. You have to know who your audience is, where they're coming from, uh, who they are, where they live it, at the most basic level because you're really not gonna get anywhere unless you have a clear idea of who is going to be coming to your screening, going to your festival, logging onto your streaming service. Like it it's 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 all about the audience and that's what that's what the NFTs really pushes in this course. Of secondary but very important after afterwards is, you know, your theoretical underpinnings, your 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 knowledge of the history of what you're trying to screen, where it's positioned in if you're if you're screening new things, where are they positioned in relation to older films, uh, other forms of art uh, and that that that's that comes with that's things you can learn in class, but it is also things you learn just by living life and exploring your own interests by your, by yourself. Um, so that's it's an important part of the course, but it is a bit secondary to the the more practical things, you know, learning about audiences, where they're coming from. We, we talk to a lot of industry professionals um, as part of the course that's really the 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 core the foundation of kind of what a lot of our learning comes from is from people who are doing the work today
0: and and i'm i'm guessing that that's kind of a all different types of institutional and commercial levels because there there is so many different types of curation and events and archiving and all these things kind of tie together in in different ways i mean it's interesting sort of from a kind of post-pandemic perception. I mean, obviously this course will have been going on before that, but I would imagine that the course maybe is, I mean, I don't know whether you know, but whether it's changed a little bit because we talk a lot about, you know, the idea of, post-pandemic cin- cinema going, you know. And what we tend to mean by that, I think, is mainstream cinema going and the production infrastructure with relationship to streaming and what impact that has on cinema going. I mean, does that form part of... Uh, well, m- m- maybe it forms a lot of the conversation that, that you guys are having now on this course when you're thinking of what cinema engagement is going to be going forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the landscape of cinema going has changed, I mean... I'm certainly not the first to say it. it's changed drastically. So I it's a lot of the uh, considerations we take in curating these these projects is are there alternative methods for engagement? I'm my 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 own grad project is happening at a very established cinema venue in central London. My other course mates have taken alternative routes in how they've programmed their own work. But I think regardless of where you're showing it, there's always, I mean, it's, it's, there has to be an eye to alternative methods of engagement. So whether that's being able to program short films on an online platform in conjunction with your physical screenings, or whether you can conduct uh, virtual panels on Zoom to supplement some of your screenings, it's, I think it's, it's a given now that you have to be looking out for these alternative avenues because because go simply going to the cinema sitting down and watching a film doesn't cut it for some people anymore some audiences that's just not going to be enough yeah so yeah, you do yeah. have to you have to you have to keep moving with them which is frustrating sometimes but it's a it's a challenge that you just have to meet
0: I was going to ask that do you think that cinema now is we have to admit that it's in a position where it's sort of it's not the mainstream attraction anymore that it once was and therefore anything outside of big tentpole movies that are essentially a different form of entertainment to, say, repertory cinema or art house cinema. And sometimes, like, we tend to forget that because we know where to go, especially if you're living in London, you know, to see the stuff that nobody else knows about. But nobody really, outside of the people who are in the know and make the effort to be in the know, have an easy access point to non-mainstream cinema. So... Is there a sort of underlying acceptance of that now going forward, and and therefore when you're putting on, whether it's film seasons or your programming in in specific venues, you you have to kind of expand the scope of access points. Let's say to people who wouldn't ordinarily know where to find this kind of cinema.
1: Yeah, I think you yeah you really hit the nail on the head in the in the first part of that statement. It's that like, I'm of the mind we have to accept that cinema going as we know it is is changed i th- i mean maybe to if maybe it's a bit defeatist but i think it's changed irrevocably like you said the 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 mainstream cinema going audience is going many fewer times each year they're seeing the kinds of films that are made in meeting rooms they're made by boards of directors rather than artists mm. and
0: and they're going for brands more than the film themselves.
1: And for going for brands, yes, yeah. The, the so a, for better or for worse, that's just the landscape of film going at the moment. I don't really see it changing. Going back to whatever pre-pandemic, I mean, even before the pandemic, it was changing rapidly. Uh, the, pa- the pandemic, I think, sort of just confirmed and facilitated some of these changes that were already in progress but like but like you said i think that just means and it goes back to the 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 awareness of audience is that if we when we are like i have been programming this very specific season of films for a very specific audience you have to just be on your game about who exactly what your programming is for and I, so I had that consideration from the very beginning. I, I was programming a season of films that I knew, I knew, I knew exactly who I want, who this audience is, and that's why it had to be at the ICA because I know that audience goes to that cinema, and I know their programming very well, and I knew that audience matched the audience that I know exists for the films that I've programmed already in other parts of the world. So you really just have to be extremely specific. Again, it's like specificity for, in the service of universality, I guess. Maybe (laughs) that doesn't make sense, but it's, you have to be very specific to accomplish your wider goals, uh, if if that makes sense.
0: Just a quick break here to thank Eric Nilsson for joining us as a Patreon member at the £10 level. We'll be contacting you very soon, Eric, to get your details so we can get your merch to you as quickly as possible. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support truly independent media, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber for as little as £2 a month. You'll get access to our bonus podcasts, free tickets to our live shows and the monthly newsletter which contains an exclusive article and a host of cultural recommendations we don't use ads on the show and producing it is a real labor of love which is why we do it however we do have production costs and we want to continue to improve the quality and expand so if you have the option to support us financially we would very much appreciate it if not no worries at all but also sharing and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods or Pod Chaser is also a great way to support. As is sharing your favorite episodes on your social media networks. And we'll always give you a shout out, of course. But now, I'm back to the show. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the season that you've programmed. It's called Beyond Interpretation yeah. and, you know, looking at the copy on the website now, it explores the connections between paranoia, conspiracy, anxiety and the precarious realities of artistic creation at the margins of American of the American film industry so why don't you explain that a little bit to us what what was your sort of thinking behind that theme
1: yeah hearing I haven't heard it uh read out by someone else before it is a bit of a mouthful but that it's as concise as I can (laughs) get those ideas into one sentence yeah so um this idea came around I think in a general sense by just an awareness of kind of the insane things happening in the world at the moment i think early 2022 from an american perspective seeing kind of from afar all the insane things that were happening roe versus wade was overturned in early 2020 the pandemic was still ongoing less severely everyday sort of political realities were just uh becoming just almost untenable it made like the the political situation in america is so fraught i would say so I I guess this the sense of just observing this all happening made me very aware once again. I mean, and like every sort of era in history has had to contend with fraught political reality, realities. Is how is cinema responding to this? So so it just necessitated a, a looking back uh, at cinema history and particularly American film history. So in the forties, in the late forties, you had film noir emerge as a genre in response to millions of American soldiers returning home and finding that the world they once knew was not quite what they remembered. A genre emerges out of that, influenced by, you know, uh, German cinema in the 30s. You have the sort of paranoid American cinema of the 70s that was responding to Vietnam and Watergate, and a hugely drastic shift in like the industrial context of the film industry, where the production code essentially ended in 1967. The studio system as we know it was, if not on its way out, totally out. And corporations were finding their way in to fill those gaps. And I think the the cinema that came out of that was a reflection of those sort of anxieties, the precarious nature of making exciting, radical art in a complicated, corporate, money-dependent context. And so that's really how I was approaching looking at film today. I wanted to look at film today, look at how, in, in what ways marginal American film was responding to the challenges we're facing today, knowing that it's been a tradition in American cinema since the studio system, at least. So, th- so that's 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 how I was approaching it, and it, and it, marginal cinema was really it was it had to be cinema from the margin, margins of the industry. I really I, I have less and less faith in mainstream American cinema to actually address you know the, the real problems of today. Not that you know exciting art can't be made from within the system, or and challenging radical art can't be made within the system. But um, I found at least for me it more important to look at art from the outside. And so, yeah, so the so the program of films I, I I came up with is really born out of that those concerns. Um, and they're, they're films from first time filmmakers or filmmakers who have made their second film. They're from people with, without studio support. They're with without, you know, personal wealth, people who have used a lot of collective action to make their films work. Uh, two of the films are from a the same production company that's that's was sort of founded by these three friends who met in college and really share their labor across their films they each take turns directing films and it, they it's it's done with this this really ne- necessary collective mindset
0: do you see a difference that you talked about marginal cinema and independent cinema do you are you making a, like a very specific difference there because i think one of the issues with independent cinema as you see it may be reflected in Sundance or something like that and then particularly the way that the discourse around particular filmmakers who have moved from what quote unquote would be independent into more mainstream filmmaking it seems that now independent cinema in America particularly in an American t- contest is just seen as a sort of feeder system <laughs> to use a baseball analogy to you know a farm school for American filmmaking. so is that the distinction that you're making with with what you're calling there a marginal film
1: Yeah I think that's something I'm doing maybe subconsciously i'm not really I'm not trying to call out. The, the American independent film industry, which I, I agree from what you're saying is uh I look at what um is maybe deemed independent film from America today and raise an eyebrow. When you have things when you have Netflix productions able to compete for, you know, the independent spirit awards in America, I have to I have to raise an eyebrow or two because it's like with Netflix behind you, how independent are you really? Sure, maybe your film was made for less than twenty million dollars, but let's look at this frankly. What <laughs> what is independent about this this film? And I think, I mean, not just to call out Netflix, no matter no matter how much I like to call out Netflix, it's a trend that's going through paradoxical mainstream independent film, which I think my my films very much are apart from. I haven't asked my direct my directors what the budgets of their films were, but it's they're 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 they are they are they they were not made for much. The first film in my program, Slow Machine, was made piecemeal across essentially three and a half years with inconsistent grant money on weekends. So it's uh that's a far cry from your, you know, no bound back Netflix production, which maybe isn't made for too much money, but yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. it's it's got a machine behind it. There's no machine behind any of my films that I'm programming.
0: We're talking more about production processes rather than aesthetic sensibilities, I think. Yeah. Um, but because, you know, historically, I think that there were the independent cinema and, and studio cinema, could be almost seen on the screen. You know, the distinction between the two was, was there in the aesthetic a lot more, whereas today, because of what you could could argue is the democratization of the internet and technology and digital culture more broadly has made it easier to bring together what is completely high. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know that CGI costs an awful lot of money, but what's interesting is there's so many, like, you know, the the, the technology around um, fake imagery and fake sound now is, is quite easy to access if you've got the know-how so you don't see it on screen but where you do feel it, i think is in things like the support for production and then the marketing that goes alongside and and then the exhibition the possibilities of exhibition so which which is why sort of a program like this is so programs like this are so important you know
1: yeah i'm i'm much more i mean i've of course of course you know interested in the aesthetics and all five of the films in my Grab Project have their own distinct visual language. But I'm also really, really interested in sort of the, I guess, the industrial context in which these films are made. A lot of these films were, you know, made with crowdfunders and, you know, the generosity of maybe bigger names who happen to be in the films. There are a couple films with bigger names names that are bigger than the film, you know. That if a if a bigger star believes in this this tiny production that can make a big difference especially when you don't have a studio or uh, a big production house or a distribution house behind you to make it a success. So, yeah, 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 I'm 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 really interested in these industry these sort of production contexts, the the industry context that I believe has had a, a, a sort of indirect effect on the visual language of the films. I think a lot of the the films visually are, you know, commenting on the kind of context in which they were made
0: yeah yeah i mean you made an interesting point before about the 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 anxiety of the the nature of art in a capitalist system and i think that the element of paranoia and anxiety we could talk about that in a broader scope and we'll touch on that in a a second but then it leads on from what we talked about before about what is independent cinema in an age where anybody with a phone you know and an internet connection can kind of call themselves an independent creator <laughs> do you know what i mean it's like it's really interesting having what has a, a you know a may a, a very long standing historical legacy in terms of you know subcultural film or an anti-capitalist political filmmaking you know or, or 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 grassroots digital digital filmmaking all of these kinds of things i think are were created in a sense to to make challenges to the way that commercialization is and its impact on art let's say but i think what's interesting now is it's almost as if even if you're at a grassroots level everybody's looking to monetize like straight away so you know what i mean that and and it's interesting then how that sits within that history of of independent cinema which really the aim was never to to for these things to be to make money really you know
1: yeah, I, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I interviewed the directors of the f- opening film in my grad project, Slow Machine. Their names are Paul Felton and Joe DiNardo. And P- Paul said to me something that has really stuck with me. He said that the, f- the film is a, or, or the, the film's kind of attitude and tone reflects his own feelings of the antagonism of the industry to the art he wants to to make. And and what you like you said about, you know, the the democratization of like technology, I think if anything, maybe it's it's the, the more people do sort of pick up their phone and try and make a movie, the more power that gives to the idea of an independent artist. I don't think I don't think I don't think this is really the, the situation where more people doing it dilutes its importance. I think if anything, the more people do it, the more important it is.
0: But would you not say, though, if everyone then is making one-minute TikTok videos that, you know, we have to troll through, it's like, where is, where, where is a boundary and a shape of artistic creation that is not just more and more additions to the the, you know because the corporations don't care what's on there they just care that something is on there but and and therefore it's reproducing that that infrastructure let's say i know there's no answer to that so i don't know why
1: (laughs) yeah no i I was gonna i was gonna say i don't have an answer for that but i know exactly what you mean yeah there is there is a there is a difference but i mean uh yeah I, i wish i had an answer for that i'd probably I don't know. I'd probably make a lot of money with that, with uh, being able to solve that. I don't know. Again, another way to monetize, but uh, mm.
0: it's a paradox. It, it is a it's yeah. a
1: huge frustrating paradox. But um, I guess at least in the in the context of the the program I've, I've I'm putting on, I, the the films were made of really outside of like this of the capitalist logic of profit. I've spoken to almost every every director, and and their aims are to make the art that just, like, sets their soul on fire, and that's, that's what I hope the films convey to the audiences who come to the screenings, because these films kind of set my soul on fire, and it's in part because of what they're kind of standing for, and it's not always explicit. I think with Paul and Joe's film Slow Machine, a, a lot of this sort of... Uh, resistance is explicit, and they're like, "Yeah, this is like this is like a middle finger to the system." Other with, the, with some of the other films, it's not necessarily that, but you can see it in the bones of these films that they're they're made, whether intentionally or not, their mere existence is a form of like resistance to the you know the the
0: powers that be. So. Just on the program itself, then you've got you've got two films mm. that, that that we've seen <laughs> on the cinematologist and commented yes, on. Yeah. I mean, Happer's comment is yes. one because we did the episode with Taylor mm-hmm. Taylor Taumina, yeah. Um so people can go back and listen to that before they uh, go to your uh, go, go to your screenings.
1: Yes, highly highly recommend.
0: Yeah, and then and then there's Amy Simons' second feature, which is She Dies Tomorrow, which is a great film, and and and, and one one of the reasons I love that is because it's got one of the, for me, one of the most enigmatic actors working today, Caitlin Shield, who seems to be a very clearly an independent, you know, a figure, a sort of presence in independent cinema. But I'm really, really, I'm interested. And I think maybe this is because my, uh, my undergraduate dissertation was about conspiracy films of the 1970s. So you've already mentioned Slow Machine, which which is the opening film, which is about uh, an out-of-worker out actress who meets a counter-terrorism agent, and there's some weird uh, you know vision of of what it means to be a creative in that sense. But the one that really gets my juices flowing in terms of, I've already bought a ticket for it is Topology of Sirens. So just reading the description, a woman discovers a collection of cryptic cassette tapes in her aunt's old house, propelling her on a sonic investigation for for answers. With hints of Antonioni and 90s computer games, the UK premiere of Jonathan Davis's first first feature immerses us in the sounds and stillness of an underseen version of Los Angeles. That ticks all of my boxes for sure.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that that's the one that has caught your attention because I fear and maybe i don't want to speak this fear into existence but i'll say it anyways i fear that that might be the one that people dismiss <laughs> because it it is uh it's the outlier i would say in this whole season in terms of its relationship to paranoia and conspiracy and anxiety i would say it's the out, it's the outlier but i think it's incredibly rewarding to watch with these things in mind because if any if anything like When I was talking to Jonathan, he these are like concerns that and interests of his that I think are buried like much deeper within him than he was necessarily explicitly trying to say with the film. But in talking to him about my interests in the way I was watching the film, he saw what I was getting at, even though they weren't necessarily his most direct um, concerns when he was making it. He he saw it within it. He saw he he sort of. Yeah, he was able to latch onto my own reading of the film and uh, and saw what I was going for, and which is why he's also very excited for this screening. So I'm really glad you you said you said you you know shout out Topology of Sirens. It's a really great one. It's think of Antonioni's. Yeah, I mean like I like I said in in the my little description, it's like it's blowout meets '90s point and click adventure computer game. Yeah, with this or maybe more. Yeah, maybe more blowout instead of blow up. Uh, because it is all about sound instead of images, at least, although the, the film has many beautiful images and is composed wonderfully. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it.
0: The last film on the list is called The Plagiarists. You want to say something about that one?
1: Oh, wh- what to say about that? This is, I, I if anything, I think this is what I'm most excited for people to see. It is one of the most thought-provoking, strange films I've seen in a very, very, very long time. What I'll say about it is that it follows a mildly nightmarish couple, a sort of Brooklyn artistic couple, white couple, as they are stranded sort of in the snow in a in a suburb after visiting their friend. And this guy, Clip, uh comes to help them after their car breaks down, and they they spend the night at his house when they wait for the the mechanic to uh, fix their car. That's really the setup for it, and it and and their their sort of chance meeting really throws this couple's sort of perception of self, their perception of the art they make, and the perception of the way they see the world this chance meeting really throws that all into chaos for very interesting reasons. And through very, yeah, in a very perplexing sort of cinematic modes. Uh, So that's all I'll say. It's, it's so it's, it's really, really amazing. And it's made, uh, made by uh, written and produced by this pair of filmmakers, visual artists, uh, James Keenitz Wilkins and Robin Chavoir, who this is their kind of most, commercial i would say f- film endeavor they mostly do sort of artist moving image um that appears in a lot of galleries so this is I th- and and they would agree this is their kind of their most uh commercial sort of film endeavor uh but it is far from any sort of mainstream even for it's it's a mainstream attempt for them but it just goes to show how kind of out of left field they are because it is one of the most it's probably the most radical film in this program
0: right just in terms then of the like the connecting tissue you've t- you've talked a little bit about you know some of the contexts of how these films might sit adjacently to each other but also how they might all reflect a certain mood in american society right now and you know like i said that that sort of there's always been paranoia or conspiracy films in american cinema but you know there was definitely there was a definite cycle in in the 70s there was a definite cycle kind of mid to late 90s and into the 2000s but it just seems now everything is either paranoia or or dystopia And, and it in some ways you could say that you know independent cinema is inherently progressive and leftist in its politics but also i think that there is a sort of level of Maybe a level of hopelessness in a lot of the cinema that we that we see right now. Like that, that it, it's just a kind of overwhelming sense of you know what is going on around us, and we can't figure we can't figure things out. And it seems that that is a, a, a mood within within you know w- within cinema. I think that you would say that that is independent or that is trying to have a, some kind of political commentary on it. I, I mean, I don't know. When, did you, would you say that that, that these films? fit in into that kind of context, let's say?
1: I think in a sense, but I, I think that the films that I've programmed are actually far more optimistic than maybe people coming into this, these screenings would expect them to be. And that was, it was, and it was not by design on my part. I, it is, it's purely been just because the films happened to be that way. And I've, and I have felt the films really fit my sort of aims. I think maybe it maybe would be hard to classify them as purely optimistic films because they they do I think engage with a lot of the negativity of the world but I think they they have, they I think they'll surprise people in just how ambiguous they are about maybe just the doomed state of the world as much as the films really are trying to explicitly say something about the doomed state of the world, which I don't necessarily think they are, they it really is, like you said, tapping into a, a much more sort of elusive mood rather than a sort of... And then trying to make a concrete statement about, the quote unquote, the times we live in, um, which I find I find those films far less interesting because uh, they're they're usually quite didactic, uh, which is inherently conservative. And these films are not conservative. They're extremely progressive films. And I think that's because of their ambiguity. There's ambiguity, ambiguity and progressiveness, I think, are inherent because I think and, and progressive. I mean, it's it's at least to me, progressiveness is a positive there's there's a positive connotation to the word progression. I mean, it's forward momentum. It's always, it's looking ahead, and so I think actually maybe I would push back on like the uh, the the dystopian nature of like leftist film. I think leftist film has to have optimism. I think it's a, it's a core concept that it, it has to engage with, and there and each each of these films has a bit of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I I guess so, and and yeah, and maybe it's you know it's far too reductive to say there is sort of conservative and liberal filmmaking you know, as as a kind of matter of course because there are so many complicated things. You know, there's so many dystopian films that are about revolutions that are really quite conservative if you think about it. Yeah, Um,
1: of course. Yeah, of course.
0: So yeah, I mean, congratulations on the season. It it starts on the 12th of January. Is that right at the ICA?
1: Yeah, the 12th of January running through the 19th. The screenings are taking place on the, the 12th, the 14th, the 15th, the 17th and the 19th. And you can right. book tickets.
0: and you can book tickets at the ICA website through
1: the ICA website ica.art uh, and you can find the program, I guess maybe by searching on their website, but there you can also book tickets through the uh, link tree in any of the uh, social media for the for the grad project for the project as well.
0: Great. Well, I'll, I'll put the link up on our show notes as well. So anybody listening, just go to our front page and you can click through from there. So what's the plan then, apart from graduating with, uh, you know, distinction, um, you know, not to put any pressure on you or anything. Do you want to get into kind of programming and working in film festivals or working in institutions? What's What's the plan, Chris?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I w- that, w- that would be a great scenario to find myself in. I, I'm yeah, really grappling with the probably the the reality that film programming won't be what I do full time. It's just the nature of the industry. the 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 jobs are not there. Um, so I yeah. So I'm I'm really sort of assessing how I'll approach this. But there are there are jobs out there, and so I'm applying for them, trying to get my foot in wherever I can. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it whatever it takes me. I would love to keep Beyond Interpretation going in some kind of form, whether it, it is a, a chance to do screenings on a semi regular basis that really engage with these ideas. Because I think the 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 part of the industry that I'm engaging with is going to keep making these types of films, and I think there's a I think there's a sort of a whole. That I hope this project is, is filling uh, like an audience hole that this project is filling by you know bringing these American films you know across the pond because I think the par- the parallels of the political situations our countries find <laughs> themselves in are quite similar and uh, I, I, I hope they resonate so yeah
0: yeah absolutely and um, yeah hopefully the, the the audiences will 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 come and uh, yeah I'm looking looking forward to going myself so uh, thanks for coming on Chris
1: thank you so much for having me.